It is, it is good to worship the Lord, amen? It's a refreshing to our soul, brother. Thank you for leading us in that time of worship. It's good. Um, true worship comes from responding well to Christ. Responding well to Christ. Listen, I'm, I'm so delighted to be with you guys. I, we've tried for quite some time, actually, for me to visit and, and get to know you all, and, uh, and the Lord has seen fit. Uh, for that to happen now, and I'm grateful. Listen, we're looking forward to, uh, as ACBC, we're looking forward to being here with all of you over the next couple of months, and uh, I, I'm excited for the training. And listen, you may say, well, I don't know about this whole counseling thing, okay? And you may think, well, I, I don't know about this whole professional. I don't know if I should, you know, I, I don't know if I should pursue that. Listen, here's the thing that I want you to understand as believers. What it means to walk faithfully with Christ and what empowers you to be able to counsel others well and to live life as a faithful follower of Jesus is that you're not implementing some sort of like distant technique out there that, that you don't know about, that you learned about sort of intellectually, and you can tell somebody about, you know, the steps they're supposed to go through. The most powerful thing that I think that happens and what empowers me by the Spirit to counsel other people is when I am convinced in my own life of the beauty of Christ and the power of his word. When you yourself are changed by the power of the word and you see the sustaining grace of Christ and the sturdy foundation of Christ for your own life, now you can't help but want to help those who are hurting, those who are in difficult situations. And that's what our training is really about, is to empower the church to call pastors and church leaders to lead in this effort to disciple and care for those who are broken and hurting, but call the church to that role and responsibility as well. And so I think you'll find it personally enriching as you grow uh, deeper in, in how to walk faithful with Christ, but then also so much. You're going to realize, if you attend this training, you're going to realize just how much the Bible says about our broken world and how the secular world is trying to to steal some of those ideas and try to empower professionalism to, to seek to help people. But listen, only the gospel of Christ can take those who are truly broken and in need of help and in need of hope and put people back together. And so I want to encourage you, if, if at all possible, to uh, join us in that training. My task this morning, uh, which is maybe a more important task, is uh, to preach to you from this passage in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 5, and I'm going to try to set the context for our time together. One of the things that I want to make sure that we accomplish this morning is that you see the beauty of the mission of the church of God, that you see the beauty of the mission of the church of God, and I'm going to talk to you about this in a couple of different ways, a couple of different ways that I think are, are critical for us to consider as we think about the church, her responsibility, and our following after Christ well. Now, inevitably, when we talk about this issue of working with broken people and dealing with issues that we struggle with in life, the question always arises regarding the sufficiency of the Bible. Is the Bible really sufficient? I mean, does the Bible talk about all those things that people deal with, the struggles that people have in life. Let me just tell you what's happened relative to a sleight of hand. Is the world is attempting in so many ways to describe human experiences by using terms and labels and definitions. And then we look at those labels and we say, you know what, the Bible doesn't talk about that. So maybe, maybe the Bible's not really helping people with those types of problems. Can I just encourage you to pause for a second and to pay attention that the Bible explains human experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly, better than any other source that exists. Because there's nothing else on planet Earth, no human wisdom, that can understand the depths of the human soul. And you can read in the scriptures, God is not ashamed to talk about the depths of the brokenness of people. Because what it helps us to see is the beauty of the glory of Christ and the power of Christ to redeem those who are hurting deeply. 
And this is the role and the mission of the church. And what I would say is that it's not the role of some institution out there. God has laid the responsibility squarely upon the church to do this work of the ministry by proclaiming the truth, the sufficient truth of God's word. And hopefully we're going to see that through Colossians this morning. I'm going to start with an illustration. And, and don't think about your pastors, okay, when I give you this illustration, because this is not an example that I'm using from them. I just want you to think about this hypothetically. Because this is the way that many churches operate. Let's say, I don't know when you guys have staff meeting, but let's say tomorrow morning, staff, lots of churches, their staff does staff meeting on a Monday morning. And let's say the church staff is having a meeting tomorrow morning. And there was something that happened uh, that was exciting the day before where a parent comes up to one of the staff members and says, you know, my, my son, um, he's, you know, 13, 14, whatever. He's been talking a lot about the things of God, and he's learning about um, salvation. And I can tell, man, the Lord is really dealing with him. Can, can you give me some wisdom on, on how to deal with this issue and how to, how to help him to understand um, the gospel and salvation? And what would happen is, man, the, the pastors would get excited about that. And if, if they start answering a question about salvation, they're going to open up the text of the Bible and they're going to get excited and they're going to point to chapters and verses. And man, look, at this is the way God talks about salvation. and This is how you should help him to think about it. And then let's say another scenario occurs. And maybe it's something like this. <clears throat> you know, guys, we have to be honest. Our, our youth has not been doing well. And again, I'm not talking about here. Okay. All right. But hypothetically, let's say, the youth has not been going well. Our numbers are down. Things are not going well. What's interesting is what would happen in that discussion after that question is raised. You see, when we ask a question relative to doctrine, we say, yeah, the Bible's sufficient. And we're, we're thumbing through, giving people answers for, for what God says about this teaching or that teaching. But when we start to ask practical questions, questions like, how do we grow? What should we do? You know what often happens? Is the Bible is closed and it's put on the side and we start asking, well, what do we think would work? What do we think would grow? What are those guys are growing? What, what are they doing that's so amazing that's getting people here? And we start to become pragmatists, separating ourselves from the beauty of the sufficiency of God's word. And what I want to encourage you with this morning from the scriptures is for us to see the beauty of the depth of the sufficiency of the word. That the word is not just authoritative and sufficient for doctrine. Because all doctrine was not simply meant to be intellectual knowledge. As Laramie said so eloquently during our time of worship, the revelation of God is intended for practice. That you respond in life and that we see the beauty of the sufficiency of the word that applies to every single aspect of our life, not just your quote-unquote spiritual questions. And I think we see this revealed particularly in a place like Colossians. Paul was dealing with something, with, with a similar question, not of youth and that sort, but he was dealing with the question of, of practice. And what was happening in the Colossian church is they were, they were looking at all sorts of wisdom, trying to, to see wisdom outside of the things of Christ. And what's interesting to me is the way Paul starts, is the way that we should start thinking about our problems as well. Because Paul doesn't start with a, a list of 10 steps to improve on this thing or that thing. What Paul starts with is doctrine, because doctrine is intended to drive life. What I want you to see is the things that Paul agonized over ought to be similar to the things that you and I agonize over. So turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to dive back up into Colossians 1 for the setting. Verse 28. But I'm going to read through verse 5. And we'll be all in Colossians 1 and 2 this morning. The word says this, it's him we proclaim, talking about Christ, warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, this is the mission that Paul gives to the church. For this I toil, 
struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle that I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach, all the, uh, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this morning that your grace would be evident. Uh, we pray this morning, Lord, that uh, you would receive proper place in exaltation. We pray this morning that, God, as you are exalted, that we would then see ourselves in relation to you and we would see ourselves for who we really are. For that's really the only way that we understand who we are, Lord, is to see ourselves in relation to you, not to compare ourselves to other things out there, other forms of wisdom, but the beauty of you being exalted and now us seeing ourselves in relation to you. May that be so among us this morning, Lord, as we learn from your word. May we be encouraged to respond appropriately to the exalted Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. One of the things that I want you to see first in this passage is that agony reveals mission. What you agonize over, what you struggle over, what you give attention to, to reveals what you desire to accomplish in life. I mean, think about it when you wake up every day. You are listening to something. And I don't mean actually radio. Or, I just mean you are paying attention to some form of wisdom. And today, you are going to be guided by whatever that wisdom is. That's your mission in life, is to respond to what you believe to be true in a given day. What Paul is saying here is he's helping us to understand what he struggles over. Now, how do we understand this struggle? And I love what Paul does here because what Paul is answering is he's answering the, these questions about where wisdom ought to come from and how we understand appropriate wisdom. And he starts by exalting Christ. If you go back to verse 15, he, he describes uh, Christ as the image of the invisible God. And he exalts how Christ is over all things. And then what he does is he explains a little bit to us about what Christ's goal is. Listen to verse 21. He says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has, talking about Christ, has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. For what purpose, Paul? Well, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, before him. So what's the primary goal? That you be presented to God holy and blameless by Christ's sacrifice. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which Paul, I became a minister. Now one of the interesting things to me is that what Paul identifies here is the mission of Christ. Is Christ being over all things Christ's goal for us, for the church, is to impart his wisdom to us so that now we can walk faithful, holy, and blameless before God. That he would present us washed by the word to the Father. And interestingly enough, what Paul does is he says that ought to be the goal of the church. He continues his argument, start at verse 24, and down to verse 28, which I read. And now you see the context for what he says in verse 28. And he says, it's him we proclaim, talking about Christ. We don't, we don't proclaim another name. We don't proclaim another gospel. We don't proclaim another hope for the issues and the problems of life. We don't proclaim another wisdom. What he's saying, what he's arguing for here is Christ has everything we need sufficient for all of life. And listen, I mentioned this in Sunday school. Don't deduce your life to spiritual and non-spiritual things. There's nothing that you do, I would argue, in life that's non-spiritual. The way that you talk to others, the way that you think about others. The Bible even says the way that you eat and drink is to be done to the honor and the glory of God. There's not a thing that you do that's not spiritual. 
And so in that, for all the problems that we have, all the brokenness and the difficulties that we find in our doing, it's him we proclaim. Paul is saying he is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. Because the Colossian church was saying, we want Christ plus some other wisdom. There's some other wisdom that, that helps to improve upon what Christ has done. And Paul is saying, not so fast. It's him we proclaim, nothing else. He didn't add anything else to the wisdom of Christ. We proclaim Christ. Why? Because it's the work of Christ in the proclamation of it that accomplishes what's necessary in our life. It's him we proclaim. And how do we do that as the church? And notice what he did. He took the goal of Christ and he made it the goal of the church. The goal of Christ is the goal of the church. And this is how Paul sees it. And then he makes it his primary aim. But this is what he says. It's him we proclaim. And how do we do that? And you see this coupling together consistently through this book in Colossians and other places that Paul writes that what he couples together is the admonition or the warning of every man and teaching. And think about the way in which we, we teach children. That's pretty appropriate. We teach and we admonish. We teach and we admonish. Now, I have six children. My oldest is 18, and we go down to twin girls that are six years old. And the ways in which I handle my children are, are different. I don't think that's unfair, but it's, it's different. My 18-year-old knows the rules of the house. And so he's been taught the rules of the house. And so when he doesn't meet some of those expectations, what's my, what's my job? My job is not to sit down and belabor constantly teaching over and over again. He knows all those things. My job at that moment is to admonish, to confront, to lay the truth upon his mind so that he sees what's right and what's wrong, and he can recognize what he's doing that's right and what he's doing that's not right in a way of encouragement to him. Now, the way that I deal with my six-year-old twin girls, not just because they're girls, uh, but the way that I deal with them is they're ignorant on some of the rules of the house to some degree. They're not as up to speed on what should be happening in any given time. They're still having new experiences and that sort of thing. And, and so let's say that they do something that, that was wrong. Or uh, my, my goal for them is, is not to, to admonish them, not in that way to correct them overtly. My job is to teach. My, my job is to teach them what's right and what's wrong. And this is the constant pattern. It's constant teaching with constant admonition. Is that we teach you the truth and then we hold you accountable to that truth. And that's what Paul was saying. It's him we proclaim and through Christ we admonish and we teach. He's not saying that there are other methods or other ways or other things or other aspects of wisdom that we should bring in. We proclaim Christ and we do that through a couple of methods. Admonishing which just simply means laying the truth upon the mind and teaching, teaching the truth of what God has said through Christ. With all wisdom that we may present, and what's the ultimate goal? We may present every man complete in Christ. Now, why would Paul say something like that? Well, we know that that's the goal of Christ, but why was that the goal of Christ? You see, one of the things that we learn about us is the Bible couches all the issues and problems and difficulties that we face in the narrative about people in Scripture. The narrative of people in Scripture is not that everything bad that happens to me is because of you know, what happened in my childhood. right? Those things are influential, they impact us, but they don't determine us. The way the Bible describes and couches all of the issues that you and I face in life has everything to do with the events of Genesis chapter 3. That we were created, Genesis 1, in the image of God, and then man fell. Romans, 12, Romans 5.12 tells us that uh, because of one man's sin that entered into the world, now we're all what? Sinners. And the aspect that we need is not wisdom that comes from humanity. We need wisdom from God to correct all of the brokenness that we see in ourselves. And how do we do that? You see, the beauty of being restored, the beauty of being put back together in all that's broken in us, whether we're talking emotionally or behaviorally or in the patterns of our thinking, has everything to do with the wisdom that's found in Christ. Because what it means for you to be healthy is the way in which you walk faithfully in relation to Christ. The Bible explains very clearly in places like Ephesians chapter 4 that when we're not walking faithfully with Christ, when we're not following after the wisdom that's found in Christ, we find ourselves like children tossed to and fro. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you, you don't know which way is up and that your life is unstable? 
The Bible describes it elsewhere in places like James chapter 1, verse 8, that you're like a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. You want the ways of the world and you want the ways of Christ. And you find yourself wobbling through life like a, like a toddler trying to get strength in his legs. And Paul says that the way in which we become established is we make it our aim to do the same aim as Christ. What it means to be healthy, how we're put back together, is that we are made complete in Christ. And the Bible couches health in those terms. The Bible builds a narrative that says that's where our hope lies. Let me ask you this. What I, what I would say is, is often true is that the church is often the last resort that people look to for help when they're struggling with different issues in life. Don't you think that that's a scheme of the evil one to convince us that everything out there has what we need as opposed to uh, the message of the church, the message of the word of God to conform us back to the image of Christ? I think that's an intentional thing. And what Paul is helping us to see is we have to maintain that the aim of Christ is the aim of the church, is the aim of our life. And this is what Paul is trying to help us to, to understand. Paul is trying to help us to see the beauty of uh, it, it, you, you don't have to be perfect to be a part of the church. What he's saying is you need to come. This place is a hospital for those who are sick, who are still wrestling, and can admit that they're wrestling with issues of sin. Listen, if you didn't rest, uh, wrestle with issues of sin, you wouldn't need to hear the word all the time. But, but you need in humility to hear the word and to be with other people who are struggling to cling to Christ so that we listen to his counsel, we respond appropriately to his counsel. What it means to be spiritually mature is not that you're perfect. What it means to be spiritually mature is not that you're right all the time. What it means to be spiritually mature is that you're open and tender to the constant correction of the word so that you're being conformed to the image of Christ. What does that tell us? That every single person, no matter what kind of facade that you brought in here today, every single person needs to be conformed to the image of Christ. And what does that mean? What that means is every single person in this room is broken in some way, shape, and form. Some of us hide it better than others. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're all broken. And that we come to a place like this to hear the beauty of the sufficient word to get the things that we need from Christ. Because we need him to be sustained. We don't need the wisdom that's found elsewhere. We need the wisdom that's found in Christ. And Paul says that this, this idea, this spiritual maturity, happens in two particular ways. Listen to the way he says it. Uh, he expresses that the idea of spiritual maturity, our growing, happens in a couple of ways found in verse 28. Teaching and applying the wisdom of God. How does that happen? We take what the word says and we begin to apply it. Now, here's the thing. Change happens in, in two basic ways. The way in which you grow happens in two basic ways. <laughs> One of the things that I see happen consistently in our culture is we don't want to say anything negative about things. You guys understand that? Like, we're, we're afraid to say anything negative about uh, some ideology or some pattern of thinking or the way people practice certain things. The Bible gives two basic ways that we grow, and it's always in thesis and antithesis. It's always in proclamation of what's right, but also in warning of what's wrong. This is the beauty of what we see here, and this is the pattern of, of how we grow, is that we want to put on the wisdom of Christ. Why? Because the Bible understands that we don't naturally have that within us, right? Christianity is not a movement of self-empowerment. That's why it's distinct from what the world describes in wisdom that they think puts us back together. So we want to apply and live the wisdom of Scripture. We want to apply the wisdom of, of Christ in the ways in which we live. But at the same time, what ought to be happening, that assumes that we don't have the wisdom of Christ in us. So what do we have in us? The Bible says that you live in this body of death, that you wrestle with the flesh consistently. And Paul uh, says later in Colossians, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 11, that we are to constantly be putting off this body of flesh. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says, We are to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And how does he say that happens? By constantly hearing the wisdom of God. So we proclaim Christ and none other. 
as the means and the way in which we grow to be conformed to the image of Christ. One of the other things that I think is critical is Paul struggled with this. Paul wrestled with this. The word that's used here is that this is something that he was agonizing over. This was critical to him. He thought this was vital to life. And that if he didn't proclaim this truth, that the church at Colossia would be vulnerable. That they would be vulnerable in, in living in their brokenness. You see what happens when the church neglects their responsibility to proclaim the truth unashamedly? Is we leave our people, the, the people we think we're protecting, right, from, from the sharpness of the truth of the word, we actually leave them vulnerable and open to other wisdoms. You see, look what Paul says in, in verse 2. He says, my goal is that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So his goal is Christ, and the means by which we accomplish this is Christ. And see, I hear this, I hear this sort of talk a lot. Is people say, yeah, well, when you have spiritual goals or you have something spiritual, the Bible is fully sufficient. But, but really, we can use worldly methodologies, we can use worldly techniques to, you know, to build self-improvement, and that's really good. It sort of like comes alongside it. It's an improvement in some way. It's more modern to what, what Christ has given to us. I want to warn you against that consistently. When you start thinking about the problems and the issues that you struggle with in life, the ways in which you're, you're broken, that, that we have a tendency to have an ear to those things which are outside from, from Christ. Can I warn you about that? Because what you practice, the way that you live, actually reveals the source of wisdom that you trust. Does your source of wisdom, is it demonstrated in your practice of life that every day you rely very vulnerably and dependently upon the truths that Christ has given to you for hope and help in life? Or do you trust other means? You see, that, that dictates and reveals what it is that you trust in for your wisdom. Wisdom is simply this, the application of, of knowledge. It's the application of knowledge. And the danger for us especially in the church, particularly the conservative church, is we say, yeah, we know what the goal is. The goal is to glorify God. And then we think the means and the techniques and the wisdom that we apply is meaningless or neutral. You see, the means matters for, what, for the goal that we're aiming at. And if it's most healthy for us to be conformed to the image of Christ, we're, we're not left with options as to how we get there or wisdom. Let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 4, do you guys remember the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness? And in that story, it's really important to see that final temptation where the evil one takes Jesus up and he's, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Do you remember that part of the story? And Jesus has repeatedly responded to temptations by the word. That's significant. I just don't have time to preach that passage today, okay? But that's significant. And in Matthew chapter 4, in that final temptation and uh, Satan is tempting Jesus actually with God's will. Think about that. Philippians 2 proclaims that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, Psalm chapter 2 says that he will, God will make his enemies, Christ's enemies, a footstool for him, meaning he will rule all the kingdoms of the world. So what's the temptation? The temptation is the means by which that happens. And what's the means? Satan was saying, well, you just bow down to me and, and we'll take care of this and it'll be okay. See, it's not just what we aim at. It's the means by which we get there. Jesus knew that God's way, God's wisdom was only through the cross. And that's the way that we achieve what God intended. It's the same way for us as we live life. In our brokenness, your brokenness is not the greatest evil. It's when you respond trying to implement other ways to fix your brokenness. You see, it's not just the goal, but it's the means by how we get there. And what is that wisdom? Paul says, I, I want to see you encouraged. I want to see you knit, knitted together in love. I want to see you to be fully assured of who Christ is. I want you to see those things, but what else does he say? This wisdom is found in a specific place. 
It's found in Christ. He goes on to qualify that. And this is what he says. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So here he's telling us, yes, we can have the right goal, making people complete in Christ. But we also have to have the right means. The wisdom of God who is found in Christ specifically. Now, as we talk about this issue of what it means to walk according to wisdom. You say, I don't even know what you're talking about. Okay, let me break this down real, real simple. Okay, Is that the way that you live life every day reveals what you trust in most. Okay, let, let me put it even more simply. Everything that you think, everything that you say, and everything that you do makes a statement about God. Now the question becomes, and you need to evaluate this, is are the things that you're saying, thinking, and doing that make statements about God, are they true? Because what it will reveal is the wisdom that you trust in. Whether you trust in the wisdom that's born from below, which the Bible makes very clear is vain, useless, and it leads to you feeling purposeless and meaningless. Because it's vanity, it's like the wind. Or do you anchor yourself in eternal hope? The hope that comes from Christ. The hope that's found in Christ. Now I want you to ask yourself a question. And the question is, the Bible says these things are hidden in Christ. Well, does that mean like we're going on some sort of like treasure hunt? We're, we're, we're like going on a scavenger hunt and we're trying to figure out where these things are. And you may say, man, uh, the, the wisdom of Christ is, just seems so elusive to me. Well, this is not really the idea that, that Paul is talking about here, that these things are hidden and God's playing some sort of like spiritual game of peekaboo with you or something like that. You see, the idea is that they are hidden in a specific place. And notice one of the favorite declarations of Paul for those who are blood-bought is he describes you as being what? Hidden in Christ. So for those who are believers, when you walk, as if you're what is true about you, that you are hidden in Christ, you just have to look around. Because that's the place where the wisdom of Christ is unveiled. Because you are, you are hidden in Christ. There are a couple of reasons why it may be that you struggle to find the wisdom of God, which is found in Christ. Number one, it might be because you're not in Christ. You're not truly found hidden in the shadow of Christ and his work. You're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You've not been forgiven by Christ. And so you find yourself constantly being tossed to and fro, and you don't know which wisdom uh, to follow. You don't know who's right. You, found, you, see, you find yourself being unstable and unsturdy in everything that you do. Well, you're trusting in a wisdom. It's just you can't find the wisdom of Christ. And the reason is because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit. And the Bible would describe you as being blinded. You want to see, but you're not seeing. This is the way Jesus describes it in the New Testament. He says you have ears but don't hear. You have eyes but don't see. It's not that you don't physically see, but you don't understand what's going on from a spiritual perspective because you don't claim the promise of being hidden in Christ. You have not been justified by faith in Christ, and you are not at peace with God. And so now doesn't it make sense to you that if you are not truly at peace with God, which only happens by your faith and trust in the work, the finished work of Christ, doesn't it make sense to you that if you're not at peace with God, you can't be at peace with anything about you? You don't need to pursue self-improvement. You need to pursue satisfaction before God and peace before God, which is only found, Romans 5.1, when you trust in Christ, you will have peace with God. And there may be a second reason, maybe a second reason that, that you who trust in Christ, you who are truly hidden in Christ, you might be walking in some indwelling sin. And the Bible describes this in terms that your heart becomes hardened, your heart becomes darkened, your heart becomes uh, uh, distant from the things of God. This is why he tells you later in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why? So that the power of Christ may, or the peace of Christ may rule your heart. You have to allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. 
or you can't experience the, the peace of God in you. You see, Paul tells us how we do this in chapter 3, if you continue reading his thought, chapter 3, um, in the first few verses. And this is, what, this is what will help to keep our minds according to the wisdom of God. He says, therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, he means if you've been hidden in Christ, if you've been raised to newness of life in Christ, keeping, uh, keep seeking the things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your mind on things what? Above, not on the things that are on the earth. And listen, I know this is difficult. I know doing that is really hard. Why? Because the things that we see with our natural eyes are convincing. They're very convincing. And we get deluded by responding just immediately to what's happening to us rather than being able to see a bigger picture of why things like this might be going on, why we might be struggling with this temptation or that temptation, or why we might be walking through suffering. We have to respond with the wisdom of God. Listen, one of my greatest concerns about what I see happening in so many churches is what we're doing right now is we're presenting the Christian faith. Our job is to present the Christian faith clothed in modern terms. But what we're doing is we are propagating modern thought in Christian terms. You see, that's not the wisdom that's found in Christ. That's not the wisdom that's hidden in Christ. Our job is to understand what's happening in the modern and take Christian language to explain why something is happening or how it's happening so that we are not conformed to the world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our mind to Christ and conformed to him. And then we see with clarity what's happening in the world. I fear what's happening is we're trying to conform Christ to the world. And we begin to follow after that wisdom. And then people wonder, why is it that I stumble in many ways? Why is it that I respond um, as if I'm blinded and darkened and unstable and unsturdy? You see, listen, some people would respond and say, well, you just lack wisdom in this area and it's because you're ignorant of something. Our greatest enemy is not ignorance. Our greatest enemy is not ignorance, but sin. Ignorance is much easier to expel than sin is to destroy. And so we love to go find out new wisdom that's out there. Because we think, oh, that's my problem, just ignorance. Now somebody's discovered something new, and that's what helps me to get on with life. Do you understand why these types of psychologies are, are fads? Do you understand why there are over 450 named different types of counseling psychologies? And people think, oh, well, they have it figured out. Well, they don't because they're, they're, they're confused about what's going on. All of them are attempts to explain the problems of man and how we fix them in, in various ways. And they don't even agree. The Bible has one seamless message to explain all of that that makes reality pop in life when you understand it. So I want to encourage you. Our job consistently is to exhort one another. Why? Hebrews 3.13 because of the deceitfulness of sin. And no person in this building is outside of that necessity. We need to constantly be exhorted with the wisdom of God to be taught and to be admonished, to be taught and to be admonished. Now I want to go on to, to the last thing that I want us to discuss. And what Paul does here is Paul's encouraging us in the wisdom of Christ. He's helping us to see that this is the aim of the church and, and don't get away from this aim of proclaiming Christ because he is the power of God for salvation, not just justification, but for the way that we live peaceably in life. And what he does is he moves into this, this, this frame of warning. And this is not uncommon in Paul. Paul teaches the truth about who Christ is. He explains how it should be implemented. And then he warns, if you don't do this, you will be deluded in this way or that way. And he repeats it a couple of times here. He, do, he does this Certainly in verse 4, he says, I say this in order. So he's giving us a purpose of why he's proclaiming a truth. So that it becomes an anchor to you and you don't drift uh, tossed to and fro by the wind that, that you see of the wisdom of the world. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So what's he saying? There are legitimate plausible arguments that are being made in the world. And the attempt of the evil one is to delude you with those arguments away from the wisdom of Christ. Why does Paul care about that? 
Why does that matter to Paul? Why doesn't Paul say, well, yeah, the wisdom of Christ just has to be, has to be first in priority, and then you can just add anything under it, and it really doesn't matter? Because what Paul knows is when we become convinced of wisdom outside of Christ, we begin to follow that pattern of wisdom, and it doesn't lead to being conformed to the image of Christ. And what does he know? If it doesn't lead you to be conformed to the image of Christ, the peace of Christ will not rule in your hearts, as he would tell us later in Colossians 3.15. Do you see the perspective, the beauty of the proclamation of the truth, and that, man, praise the Lord for you guys that hear the word preached every single week. That you hear the wisdom of God, and you hear it in terms of what we ought to think, and then the, the plausible arguments that we ought to avoid. And this is the picture that we see here, where Paul is encouraging us. Listen, if we, if we don't teach people to quarrel with their sin and to love God, we are teaching them to quarrel with God and love sin. It's just the truth. And we have to make that distinction of the hope that's in Christ. And listen, the beauty of Christ is that he explains our experiences, all of your experiences, the good ones and the terrible ones. The Bible explains those experiences better than any other system. Now I want to warn you about a couple of things that I see consistently happening in the world. And there are more than the things I'm going to mention here. But these are some of the things that are constantly deluding us in a thousand ways and that we have to be cautious about. And the church has suffered, I think, because we've, we've bought into some of these things. But we have to be careful to stand as constant watchmen for the beauty of the wisdom that's found in Christ and to make sure that we find ourselves constantly hiding in Christ so that we see the beauty of his wisdom. And I think this is the passion of, of Paul, and this is what makes a person wise. I tell my kids this all the time. What makes you unwise is you don't think about tomorrow. It is you make a decision based on how you think that will affect you right now. But, but do you see what happens? It matters what you think now because that fleshes itself out in a day or two or a week or two or, or whatever. Right? So you need to think about what are the consequences of something like that. And that's all Paul is saying here is you need to pay attention to the consequences. This is the truth. Be found in the wisdom that's, that's in Christ. But also be warned, because if you start to drift from that, this is what will happen. You will be deluded. He, he says it another way. If you go, and he encourages us in verse 6 to, to walk by faith, not just receive Christ, but to walk by faith. And then he warns you again in verse 8. This is what he says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. I think that's a really interesting thing. It's not like you just dabble with those things and they're harmless. You see, when you're deluded by arguments against the wisdom of Christ, you begin to be taken captive by those things. Do you know why? It's because whatever you fear becomes your wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says in Proverbs 9, 10. That's not just a pithy statement about how we should fear God. That's an anthropological principle about the way you were made. You were made to fear you were made to fear God, and when you fear God, you are captivated by him, and you respond to all of life in fear of him. But you begin to transition your hope in the wisdom that's found in God, which in the New Testament is revealed as Jesus Christ. And we begin to delude ourselves, and we begin to fear other things. Government, political ideologies, false philosophies about what our true hope really is, in life, when we begin to fear those things, now they become our wisdom. And what happens? You become captivated by them. You find yourself in bondage to them. What are some of those things? The first thing that I see happening, which is all around us, is pragmatism. Now, that's a big word, but all it means is just, uh, we think, um, we, we, we value most the practical outcomes. Okay? What worth is determined by practical outcomes whatever pulls the most people in that's what's accepted whatever we think works the best that's what's accepted in pragmatism though uh, theology takes a back seat to methodology see theology takes a back seat to methodology and that's biblically it never happens that way biblically what happens is theology is first and out of theology comes methodology the way that we practice Truth is revealed about God, we respond. That's methodology, okay? And so when we think about pragmatism, we've been doing this for years. 
where experience, ours and others, becomes our practical guide. And so we say, well, it worked for them, so we're going we're gonna to try it, right? Th- this is the way that the church down the street is building their youth program, so that's what we're going to do. We put the Bible up. You see? We've been deluded by this issue of pragmatism. And it's become a cancer to us in the church. It's deluded us. It's captivated us. And you notice what happens when we're captivated by those wisdoms? We become blinded to the wisdom that's found in Christ. The second thing is consumerism. Consumerism. We're turning to books on marketing as our methods and standards for for growth. Let me tell you something. When you start entertaining and appealing to the flesh of people to get people into a church, you'll never see spiritual results. Never. I remember having an experience one time. I walked into a Christian bookstore. And in the Christian bookstore, I remember seeing walls of Bibles. Now, I'd been there many, many times before. I'm not sure exactly why it hit me the way that it did. Maybe it's because I'd just been overseas and <clears throat> been with brothers and sisters who, uh, who had been given the word. And for many of them, it was the first Bible that they had ever owned in their language. And, and I looked in this Christian bookstore, and what I saw was Bibles, wall to wall, of different colors, two tones, and you know, rhinestones on you know, different translations and all these different things. And I'm grateful that the Bible has been saturated here, but I just thought about how we seek after preferences for those things when there are over 2,000 languages that still do not have the beauty of God's Word in their language. And yet, do we really believe that it's the wisdom of God that leads to peace in life? Do we, leave, do we really believe that it's Jesus in his way only that leads to salvation? We are consumed by consumerism. But listen, we don't go to church to be a consumer. We go to church to be consumed by Christ. Because he bought you with a price. You are, you are his. And then the last one I'll mention is humanism. Now that just means that, that we seek our self-interest first. That's the religion of our day. That's the spirit of the age. If you were to apply what Paul talks about in other places, that's the spirit of the age in which we live in. This comes, and this is one form of many. But what dominates our culture is expressed in religious terms and humanism is something like self-esteem. Many of the Christian self-help books that you read are driven by an ideology that comes from the secular world of self-esteem is you need to think better about yourself. And as you think better about yourself, things will start to work out and you'll become empowered. You'll have some sort of inside knowledge. That's Gnosticism. That's the exaltation of man. Nowhere does the Bible say to exalt yourself. It's completely antithetical to anything the Bible actually says. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, where he tells us to, to have the mind of Christ, not thinking of himself of any importance, but considering others as more important than himself. There's no self-esteem found there. He continues on in Philippians chapter 3, 3. Let us put no confidence in the what? In the flesh. It's directly antithetical to the wisdom that's found in the world. Our consistent appeasing of the flesh will never produce what Christ longs for in us. Listen, these are attacks to hijack sanctification. These are attacks to hijack peace. I want you to know why this is important. Because if you go down to the end of Colossians chapter 2, here's the conclusion. Paul is setting all this up, and he's making this the aim of the church because people's lives depend on it. Listen to what he says in verse 22. Well, go back to 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts, and teaching. You see, he's contrasting now human wisdom, human precepts and teaching. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance. This is why they're deluding to us. This is why they are deceptive to us. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. They, they entice us to think that that's how we change and that's what improves our life. That's what makes us better. He says, and asceticism and severity of the body. But, listen to the last phrase, and please, Listen to the last, meditate on the last phrase. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. There are two ways that you're deluded. 
number one, to think that your greatest problem is not your flesh. And then you redefine it by something else and you run after wisdom that really doesn't matter. And the second is you start being convinced that the way you can change your flesh is by wisdom found outside of Christ. Paul's constant plea is that the aim of the church is the aim of Christ, which is to proclaim Christ in his wisdom that now conforms us to his image so that what? We are not deluded by empty arguments, vain philosophies, and vain deceptions. This is our call. Romans 13, 14. We are to make no provision of the flesh. Is this so, is this so in you? Every day you wake up and you, you follow after some form of counsel. The things you say, the things you think, and the things you do are expressions of that. This is why you need to be saturated constantly with the word. This is why you need to be constantly under the preaching of the word week after week. This is why you need to be in constant fellowship with one another, encouraging one another with the beauty of the wisdom of God and the word correcting. Why? Because sin is deceitful and you're as prone to it as I am. We need the encouragement of the beauty of the fellowship of truth and we need to be in a place that's constantly proclaiming it. You need it. We need it. Listen, if our people, if our people are powerless to overcome fleshly indulgences, then they're relying on wisdom other than Christ. Think about this passage in reverse, and this is how you can diagnose yourself, and I'm done. If you are seeing that you are struggling to overcome the indulgences of your flesh, or your friends are, are struggling to overcome the indulgences of the flesh, Paul gives an explanation as to how that happens. You've been deluded by argument. You've been captivated by them. And what have you abandoned? The wisdom that's found in Christ. And you're not conforming to the image of Christ, which is the ultimate goal. You're following after wisdom that comes from another source. Man, can I just make a call to you to turn your heart back to Christ? Find yourself in humble repentance, turning back to Christ, dismissing all those things which have deluded you. Feel that guilt and shame. It's okay. It's intended not to make you run from Christ, but to hear the call that he gives in Matthew 11. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will, he says later, give you rest for your soul. That's what we want. And the church is the institution that's called to proclaim it. May we walk faithful in the wisdom that's found in Christ, saying no to the captivations of other wisdom. So let's pray. God, we're so grateful for your kindness and your word to us. You are good to us by the way in which you explain gently and carefully. We're so thankful for your Holy Spirit, God, that gives us understanding that illuminates the beauty of the word. And I pray, Father, that you cement these truths in our heart, that we would respond appropriately to you for who you reveal yourself to be, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in you. Thank you, God, that you've been a kind God to give us that wisdom, and may we respond appropriately in Christ's name. Amen.